Good morning. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. During the 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and ascension, Jesus appeared to many of his followers. And so on the heels of Easter this year, today, we're looking ourselves at a few of those resurrection appearances of Jesus. This morning, John, in his gospel, gives us, well, the third and final post-resurrection appearance of Jesus that appears in the gospel of John. It's a rather well-known story where the disciples make a miraculous catch of fish while fishing on the Sea of Galilee. But we've, before we dive into the sea, before we dive into the fishing story in John, just a brief note on something strikingly similar among all four Gospels as we literally uh, spend time this week and in a couple of weeks in the last chapter of John. Have you ever noticed how each Gospel ends? Matthew ends his Gospel with the Great Commission. Jesus takes the disciples not to a sea in Galilee, but to a mountain in Galilee and charges them to go into the world and make disciples of all nations. Luke ends his Gospel in Jerusalem where Jesus charges his disciples to be his witnesses to the world. And Mark's Gospel ends with Jesus commissioning the disciples to go into the world to preach the good news to all creation. That the similarity here at the end of each Gospel is the focus and the emphasis on the church and its work in the world with people. And John's Gospel ends with this same evangelistic people focus of the church. We are to go into the world and, and be the means that God uses to bring people into the kingdom of God. Let's read from John chapter 21. Jesus has already appeared to His disciples first without Thomas present, you may remember, and then again including Thomas. And so now, some eight days later, we estimate, after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples have followed the instruction of that angel at the tomb, at the empty tomb of Jesus. Remember, the angel instructed Mary to tell the disciples to go to Galilee, where Jesus will meet them again. And so they go there, and while waiting for him, they figure, it seems, they might as well go fishing. And so we pick up the story in John 21, beginning with verse 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. That's another name for the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, which means twin, Uh, We suspect that Thomas was uh, one of two twins. Nathaniel, and then John adds, from Cana in Galilee. Why add where Nathaniel was from? Some have suspected maybe some foreshadowing of something miraculous that may occur, since Cana, of course, was the site of Jesus' uh, first two miracles. The sons of Zebedee, James and John, also known as the sons of thunder, Great nickname, Sons of Thunder, isn't it? And two other disciples were together, so there's seven of them. Don't know where the other four are. Uh, Maybe they didn't feel like going fishing that morning. So they went out. Whoops. Verse 3. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. 
And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, so they've been fishing all night, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, literally in the Greek, children, haven't you any fish? Fascinating word here in Greek that Jesus uses for fish. It's the only time that particular Greek word for fish appears in the entire New Testament and even in the Bible. Hebrew doesn't have a counterpart for it. The particular word that Jesus uses for fish is well, it's almost idiomatic in Greek, bite to eat. So he, he's and knowing what's coming next, Jesus has got to have a grin on his face when he says this. Don't let anyone tell you, ever tell you that God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, they have a sense of humor, my friends. Don't let anybody tell you they don't. And he says, hey, guys, hey, kids, have you got any little bite to eat yet? knowing what's about to happen. And you can see by the brevity of their answer that these disciples have been fishing all night long and they're not exactly pleased they don't have any fish. No, they answered. He said, Jesus, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. That's the disciple John. He saw this miraculous fish thing, and something clicked for John. Those of you who know the Gospel of Luke, you'll remember in Luke chapter 5, there was a similar fishing miracle. John took one look at those fish, probably got whiplash looking toward the shore. Peter, it's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord. He wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore, it was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the very word of God. Amen? Amen. One thing that nearly everyone, if you want to read what people have written on John 21, as I've spent some time doing the past couple of weeks, one thing nearly everyone wants to talk about, it seems, in this passage, is what is up with John giving us that specific number of fish caught that, caught that day. 153, that, that number is so precise, isn't it? What's up with that? Why not just say a whole lot of fish? Or why not round the number, over 100, or even say 
about 150. The precision of 153 seems to draw attention, and indeed it has captured the attention and interest of theologians and scholars for centuries, literally. Some have suggested that such precision adds veracity to the story, gives it credibility. It really happened. So John gives us that detail to help lend truth to the story. See, we even counted the fish. And there weren't just 152, there were 153 fish. And it's true, that kind of detail helps show the story is indeed true. And I have no reason to suggest John didn't have that in mind when he decided to write down the exact number of fish. Many others over the centuries have suggested there may be more that John intended by including the precise number of fish caught that day. Of this school, school of theologians, not fish, the most popular theory still today was first suggested by St. Jerome way back in the 4th century. Jerome says his research showed that in the 1st century, it was well known or taught that there were, get this, exactly 153 different species of fish in all the world. And this led Jerome to be the first to suggest that the reason John tells us there was 153 fish caught that day is because John's making the point that the disciples, these fishers of men, were to go to the ends of the earth, to every nation, all people with the gospel. The gospel was now for everyone. And that theory certainly fits, yes, with, with the rest of Scripture and God's plan to indeed go to the ends of the earth. A possible problem, however, with Jerome's theory is that when we check the source Jerome said he used for this information, about 153 species of fish, well, the source doesn't mention it. <laughs> now, scholars debate this. Did Jerome have a different copy of the book or scroll from that source? Was he mistaken? Did he somehow get it wrong? We don't know, but it's not in the source he identified for us to verify. What's more... Other sources suggest that in the first century, people in fact thought and were taught there were 74 species of fish. So we're not sure about this proposed connection between 153 fish and different nations, peoples of the world. And you know, with this kind of interpretation involving biblical numbers, well, we need to be careful, don't we? it can lead to some pretty precarious conclusions. For example, Origen, a very respected early church father and theologian, he said the 153 stood for the Trinity. And his reason was because 153 is 50 times 3 plus 3. Wow. <laughs> And not to be outdone, Cyril of Alexandria said, 153 stands for 100 pagans, 50 Jews, and the remaining three stood for the Trinity. Okay? Now, they could be right. Amen? But maybe there's an equal chance at least 
they're wrong. And so we should keep keep in mind, keep that in mind when interpreting numbers in the Bible, um, especially. And so nothing I'm suggesting or about to suggest to you this morning about what the 153 might mean is necessarily the gospel truth. Okay, beyond the truth that there were indeed 153 fish, since that's what the Bible says. Okay, are we clear? Good, I heard a few yeses. So, but, or and, when it comes to guesses, however, there are wild guesses and there are educated guesses. And within the educated guesses camp, there are some educated guesses that may be better than others. For example, here's an educated guess at a possible meaning of John including in such detail 153 that in my own personal opinion is at least on the better end of the educated guess spectrum. See what you think. Scholars of all stripes agree that Jewish writers like John often used something called gematria when using numbers. Say gematria. Gematria is where each each letter of a word or a name is given a numerical value. The first letter of whatever alphabet you're using is one, and then the last letter of whatever alphabet you're using is however many letters there are in the alphabet. So English 1 through 26, Hebrew 1 through 22, and Greek 1 through 24, because that's how many letters are in those respective alphabets. And so the gematria of a word or a name is the sum total of all its letters, numerically. So, for example, the gematria of the name David in Hebrew is 14. And many scholars agree that Matthew, in particular, in his gospel, uses this fact meaningfully in the genealogy and lineage of Jesus. Perhaps the the most well-known or infamous suggestion of gematria going on is with the title and name Caesar Nero. I have no doubt many of you have heard of this, which again, in Hebrew, if you add up Caesar Nero, the gematria of Caesar Nero is 666. I'll bet many of you no doubt have heard of that possible connection, at least with Nero and the number of Antichrist. Well, What might gematria have to do with the 153 in our passage this morning? So glad you asked. In Ezekiel 47, the prophet prophesied. That's what prophets do. They prophesy. We read in Ezekiel that at the end of time, when the Messiah comes, there will be a stream of fish stretching from Engedi to a place called en Aglime. And it's emphasized in Ezekiel that it will be every kind of fish known to man. Well, take a wild guess at what the Hebrew gematria of en Aglime is. Take a wild guess. Yes, it's indeed 153. Just a coincidence? Maybe. But it's also possible that John, who in particular uses Old Testament references all the time, especially in Revelation, same author, it's also possible at least that John caught the prophetic significance of 
the Messiah on the shore in Galilee that day, and 153 fish the disciples haul out of the sea. Maybe that's why he's sure to tell us exactly that there were exactly 153 fish. I don't suppose we'll know for sure until we can ask John one day, but I wouldn't put it past John to make that connection, to show the fulfillment of that prophecy in Ezekiel, to offer that additional proof that Jesus is indeed Christ and Messiah, a central theme in John. I mean, in Ezekiel you have fish and 153 in a Messianic context. And here in our passage this morning you have fish and 153 in a Messianic context. And because we can eat fish, perhaps it's at least food for thought. So I'll leave you with that. In any event, that's bad, I know. In any event, there was truly a miraculous catch of fish that day. And perhaps 153 helps emphasize that Jesus is indeed Messiah. A clear theme in all of John, indeed the Bible. And with a nod to St. Jerome, perhaps 153 also helps emphasize that our commission is to reach and that the gospel is indeed for everyone, all nations. Again, a clear theme in John and indeed all the Bible. Okay, with that very popular topic out of the way, I'd like to turn our focus this morning to something else that John may be trying to emphasize in telling this story. And to help get at that, a few things about first century fishing may prove helpful. In the first century, one method of fishing, and it's the one that the disciples seemed to be using that day in Galilee, is where one or two boats would go out onto the water with something called a trammel net. This net was a long one, maybe 300 feet long. And then it was as wide as the water was deep, so the bottom could rest on the bottom of the sea. And that bottom edge of the net was weighted down with stone or metal, so it would sink. And the top edge of that net then was lined with cork, so that top edge would float along on top of the water. So if you can picture it, the boats would take either end of that long net, spread it out 300 feet across the water, allow that bottom edge to sink while the top edge floated, and then the boats would sail around in one big circle and draw the ends of that net together in a huge circle. Can you picture it? Creating a, a net wall around a large area of the sea. The idea was, you know, to narrow your field of fishing, trap unsuspecting fish inside that big circle of the net. And then the boats, depending on what they wanted to do, depending on the fishermen, they could tighten that circle a bit to their heart's content uh, to concentrate or crowd the fish more inside that circle. Once that was completed, the fishermen would then use another net called a casting net be a smaller, circular, handheld net, about 20 feet in diameter, and they would fling this casting net, as the name suggests, they'd cast it over the crowded fish inside the big enclosed circle of the trammel net. Many of you, I'm sure, as I have, I've seen it done. And if thrown right, 
<laughs> I've tried to throw in one. I never could throw it right. Mine kind of went in a big ball and just landed in the water. If you throw at that casting net right, it opens like this big parachute as it's sailing over the water, really wide, 20 feet wide. It spreads out and then lands on the water, and then all of its edges are weighted, and the whole thing sinks down, hopefully over a clueless, unsuspecting, crowded fish. Then you'd have one end or two ends of a tether of a rope around the complete edge of that net. You'd draw it tight. You'd either draw in that casting net, hopefully with lots of fish caught in it, or you might dive into the water and, and get the fish from the casting net by hand. Then you'd climb back into the boat, pull in the casting net if it's not already in, carefully you know, wind it up, and you'd cast that thing out again. And the whole process would repeat until you were either done fishing or too tired to throw that net anymore. Okay, that's number one. Number two, a, a bit about the fish in the Sea of Galilee. There were two, two or three, but uh, scholars debate, two main types of fish anyway, known by the sophisticated terms large fish and small fish. <laughs> the large fish are, are tilapia, today also called St. Peter's fish, really because of the passage this morning. You recall that the disciples capture these large fish, tilapia. And then there were small fish, and we'd call them sardines. Now, with that bit of background, let's take another look at the passage. The method the disciples are using that day, the method I just described with the trammel uh, net um, in, in that big circle, with that casting net thrown inside the circle, some suggest that that method was best suited and intended to catch the small fish, sardines. You weren't after the large fish, the tilapia, in that way, because the large fish, they'd easily tear up that more smaller, delicate casting net. You remember the surprise at the end that John emphasizes, and the net didn't even break. Not just because of the number of fish, but large fish. And, and it appears, at least, Jesus, maybe he recognizes you know, by the method the disciples are using when he walks up to the shore. I always wonder how long he watched those guys fish. Maybe for a while. Who knows? It doesn't say. You can see him watching his disciples incognito fishing. And maybe there's something about how they're fishing with that big trammel net and the casting net. Maybe he sees by their method that they're after sardines. You say, where do you get that possible insight? Well, remember, Jesus asked them whether they had caught any you know, bite-to-eat fish. It might suggest, hey, have you caught any of those little fish? Maybe a reference to small fish. Next, when Jesus tells the disciples to cast their nets, that'd be that handheld casting net, when Jesus tells them to cast their nets on the right side of the boat or the other side of the boat from where they're doing it, those boats would circle around that, tra that trammel net and throw it into the circle. So they must have been doing it over the left side for Jesus to say, now throw it over the right side. Well, listen to what he's asking them to do. What he's asking them to do is crazy. Any fisherman would tell you that. When he says, throw it on the other side, throw it on the right side, the other side than what you're doing, he's telling them, take that net and just throw it out into the open sea. Fishermen then and today would tell you, I mean, that's the definition of futile. 
You're not going to catch any fish that way. There's no crowding of fish. There's no way that you're going to catch fish. Absent a miracle. But that's exactly what Jesus tells them to do. And when they listen to him, they catch fish they weren't even trying to catch. They catch large fish. And so, catch this, if you will. They catch the wrong fish with the wrong net in the wrong spot using the wrong method. And yet, they catch the fish. It's truly a miracle. And John, the beloved disciple, doesn't miss a beat, does he? Takes one look at all these large fish, despite doing everything that fishermen thought were the wisest things to do. He looks back to the stranger standing there on the shore. I imagine Jesus has got to be grinning at at all of this, doesn't he? How could he not be grinning watching these disciples? Whoa, what's going on? Look at the fish. Takes John about two seconds to say to Peter, it's the Lord. And of course, no sooner is that out of his mouth and Peter is headlong into the water. I often wonder why he didn't try and walk on the water again, probably because Jesus wasn't at the time. But in any event, splash! Peter can't wait to get to shore to see Jesus, can he? So what's our point this morning? I'll put it first this way. Until Jesus shows up, the disciples on their own, they don't catch anything, do they? In fact, did you know, Jesus' disciples, many of them fishermen by trade, did you know that in all the Gospels, no disciple ever catches one single fish without the help of Jesus? Did you ever notice that? These guys, these guys must be the worst fishermen ever. Not a blessed thing in all the Gospels. And therein, I think, lies the lesson this morning. We can fish to our heart's content. We can preach and teach and pour out love and witness of who God is in Christ Jesus. We can try as we might to save souls and impact the world for Christ. But you know what? Without God, without Jesus' help, we wouldn't catch, we wouldn't convince, we wouldn't love one single soul into the kingdom of heaven. Not one. It's not ultimately up to us. God wins souls. God convicts people of truth. God does it, not us. We do our part. And what's our part? Just fish. Just fish, my brothers and sisters. And leave the success of it to God. Just fish. When I was an attorney, I'll never forget a seminar where a guy came in to help our law firm get more clients. To make his point, I'll never forget it, he used the example of when someone is shooting a gun. He used that old adage or saying, ready, aim, fire. And his point was that in his experience, the law firms and other businesses that he went out to meet, they often get stuck in the aiming part, strategizing, planning, studying, researching, preparing, but they never get around to actually doing it. His preferred motto for client development was, ready, fire. 
And they may often be a healthy reminder in our own life in witness. Only in church, maybe we don't want to shoot people into the kingdom of heaven. So, so maybe in church it could be ready, love. Ready, preach. Ready, tell people about Jesus. You know, one reason it took so long for me to be more active in my faith and witness is that I never felt ready enough. Or I kept feeling like I needed more training or more information or more something. I, I still feel that sometimes, inadequate. But God finally brought me to a place where, where I don't let that keep Him from using me as much as I used to get in the way or let that get in the way. And the one thing that helped me become more active in sharing Jesus with people is that I finally got it through my thick, stubborn Dutch head that it ultimately isn't up to me. The success of it was all up to God. And not whether I was really any good. I just had to fish. I know I've shared this with you before, but I can't resist doing it again. It's one of my favorite stories ever. Jonah, the prophet, is in Nineveh. Finally, after trying to run away from his responsibility to reach Nineveh for God. But he's finally there. By way of fish. There's your tie to the passage this morning. And so there Jonah stands in Nineveh. And he gives what's got to be the absolute worst evangelistic sermon of all time. I'll paraphrase his entire message. You look it up sometimes. Jonah says, You're all going to die. And he turns and leaves doesn't tell him anything about God or which God or who he just shows up in the city gate. Doesn't even go in. <clears throat> You're going to die. Terrible evangelistic message, don't you think? And part of the punch in that story, look what God does anyway. The entire city is saved. Even the animals get into the act. Laws are passed. It's a huge success. Why? Because of Jonah's polished message? (laughs) Jonah at least fished. This much. God asks at least, and he'll do the rest. Just fish. My friends, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you're ready. Period. Just fish. There isn't anyone who's a Christian who can't tell what Jesus means to them. There isn't anyone here who can't be a friend or show love to someone in Jesus' name. Just fish. You don't have to be a pastor or a scholar. Just fish. Just do it. My word, Nike got it right, sort of. I'm sure that wasn't intended. Just fish and leave the rest to God. Recently, 
The Washington Post conducted an experiment. They caught it on videotape. Let's take a look. We'll let it roll, John, and I'll tell you about it as it plays. That violinist that you see playing on the edge there, he's playing in the entrance to a commuter station in Washington, D.C. What no one knows that is, no one is aware, that violinist is Joshua Bell, a world-renowned virtuoso. Mr. Bell commands as much as $1,000 a minute for his performances. And he's playing on a $3.5 million Stradivarius violin. Now let me ask you, what jumps out at you from this stunt they pulled? No one notices. Look at him. Bell played. He played for 43 minutes. And 1,097 people passed by, and exactly seven people stopped to listen for at least one minute. Oh, and they threw a total of $32.17 into his violin case. Isn't that amazing? Only one person, and you'll see her at the end, only one person recognizes him. One in a thousand. This virtuoso, this expert, playing on the best instrument that money can buy. she is <laughs> here's the point of this illustration it ain't about you and it ain't about me even if we're the most amazing evangelist ever even though we're sharing the most beautiful message the gospel known to humankind and taking it from the most priceless book ever written the Bible people might not even notice you ever felt like Joshua Bell you ever felt like he must have felt that day when when you show and tell people about Jesus ignored avoided of no effect like when you preach and no one but George laughs at your lame jokes. <laughs> In the Washington Post article, they, uh, it's a great article. If you go to the Washington Post uh, website, if you're interested, just there's a search engine there for Joshua Bell. This article will come up. Really well written. And um, he talks with Bell about his experience. And... Two things stunned Bell the most. The first was 
He was absolutely stunned by the silence after pouring out his heart and soul at the end of these great classical pieces. I mean, he's used to, on the final note, thunderous, standing ovations. And the other thing that just really was a challenge for him was the noise while he was playing, the chaos around him pouring out his heart and soul. I mean, when he would perform for real in front of packed out audiences, people would suppress coughs and wait for a break in the music before they would even clear their throat. But it didn't stop Bell from pouring his heart out that morning, and it shouldn't stop us from pouring ours out when it comes to showing and telling people about Jesus. Ultimately, it's up to God who will truly hear and respond to him through us. It's not up to us. And P.S., just because very few were reached that day, does it mean there was anything wrong with Joshua Bell? No, he's the best. Does it mean there was anything wrong with his violin? Nope. It's the best. How about when no one seems to truly hear our witness? Does it necessarily mean there's something wrong with us or our method, necessarily? Or does it mean there's anything wrong with the message? We need to value add to the Bible. Compromise it. Because it's not working. Something wrong with the Bible? Necessarily? (laughs) Not ever. No, the Bible's the best. We can't always measure our success only by the number of people that are immediately impacted, can we? Sometimes it takes time, and sometimes we don't even get to see that. We just need to fish. Doesn't necessarily mean we should change our method or our message because it's all up to God. We just need to play, we just need to fish. We just need to love and tell about Jesus. And sure, we should study, gain more knowledge, learn from experience, use our brains. Okay, I get all that and it's important. But please, as we're doing that, fish with whatever hook, line, and sinker God has given you. I loved what Steve said earlier. Whether carpenter or teacher or whatever it is, you're you're all gifted. You're all made in the image of God. Fish with that, will you? We dare not get stuck aiming, get stuck in preparation mode. We need to get around to, as often as we can, the fishing. And if you've got Jesus, you're ready to fish. Just fish. And trust God with the rest. And oh, the freedom in this, my friends. The peace, no pressure because it's up to God. Just fish. The disciples just needed to throw that net. And they couldn't keep all the fish in the world out of it even if they had tried. Just fish. Trust God with the results. Just fish. And one day, guaranteed, you'll hear the Father say to you, 
well done, good and faithful servant. Nice fishing. That's a paraphrase. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege and joy and opportunity it is to show and tell people about you. And we pray, Father, earnestly and humbly that you would use us to reach the world for Christ, that would, you would, through us, show and tell people about you, about your love, about salvation in the name of Jesus and in the name of Jesus alone. Would you use us in that way? And if and when we get discouraged, would you remind us to look to and lean on all the more harder on you and help us to humbly recognize that ultimately, Father, it's all up to you and give us the courage and the strength and the stamina and the perseverance and the love to just keep on fishing in Jesus' name. Would you all stand, please, and we'll close with God's benediction. This one from the Gospel of chapter Luke, that other fishing story that I mentioned to you, In context, in that story specifically, the disciples are feeling they're not up to the task of following Jesus. And Jesus encourages them with these words. May they encourage us today as well. Jesus said, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything and followed Him. In the name of the Messiah, may that be said of us as well. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great week. God bless you all.